Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples weekly sermon podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Lord, I just, I do thank you for this morning. I do thank you for the trip and for an opportunity to get away and to witness your splendor, both in the natural world, Lord, and in the understanding that you have all things in your control. Nothing escapes your vision, Lord. I read again in Isaiah that your hand is not too short that it can't save and that your ear is too heavy that it can't hear. Lord, but you say that it is our iniquity that separates us from you. So, Lord, forgive me now. If there's something, Lord, that I've been holding on to, Lord, that I have not repented of, Lord, I confess it now and repent of it so that I might stand here in front of this congregation clean and ready to be used by you this morning, Lord. Open up our hearts and our minds. Lord, give us ears to hear this morning as we dig into your word, Lord, and the word that you had for your people then and what you have for us now. We thank you, Jesus, and in your name we pray. Amen. So, gang, turn over into Deuteronomy. Here we are again. You got a little reprieve. We're back into Deuteronomy chapter 29. If you don't have your Bibles with you, you can put up your hand. Charlie and Bob have uh, Bibles for you today um, so that you can follow along. It's really important. If you uh, don't own a Bible, um, and I would encourage you to just take this one home with you. We've got lots. Go ahead and take this Bible home and... Uh, um, during the week, open it up and see if um, God wants to talk to you. I know he does. In fact, if you don't even know where to go and you have a Bible and you take it home, why not just open it up and start reading the Gospel of John? What a great way to learn of the love of Jesus Christ for you. Now, sometimes God works in our lives where he um, shows us how, just how involved in the, in the timing of our life he is. And so, so I see that here. Whereas when I was last here with you guys a couple weeks ago, we finished up chapter 28. You remember 28, the 54 verses of curses? Remember all of that? And we, we looked at the blessings and the curses. And then I went on vacation. And then you had a really wonderful time with Pastor Jeff, not in Deuteronomy. Thank you, Jeff. Um, but but now, now we're back again. And it's kind of exactly echoing what happened here. See, when Moses got to the end of chapter 28, as we would divide the chapters, um, it was like he gave them a little bit of a break. You know, I imagine he probably was there all day, you know, talking to them through, you know, they actually only had to stand there like pretty much one day and listen to him. You, you poor folks have been here for weeks and weeks and weeks going, sorry about that. But it's important. He kind of dismissed them at the end of chapter 28. And then now in 29, what he's doing is he's calling them all back together. Remember, they're on the verge of going into the promised land. They're gonna, there's the Jordan River is right in front of them. They're looking over at Jericho. They're going to go in and take that land. And he calls them all back together. And chapter 29 and chapter 30 are kind of a summary of a lot of the things that he's, some of the main points that he uh, has been talking about through all these other chapters. And that's kind of where we are now. Now I've I'm called you all back together, and we're going to look at chapter 29 together. And this is what it says. These are the words of the covenant of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? He starts off with these are the words. That's like the name of the entire... These are the words. No? That's not how I imagined it, but you never know. 
These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. He's actually talking about kind of two groups of people, right? The original group of people that he made the covenant with, where he said when they first came out of Egypt, now we're going to go into this promised land, and it's going to be a land that's flowing with milk and honey, and it's going to be amazing, and let's go in. And the people came to Moses and said, okay, but maybe we should send in some spies to check it out. And Moses uh, allowed for that to happen. And you know, the spies went in, and uh, they came back, and they said, yes, it is an amazing land with milk and honey. However... There are also high-walled cities and armies and giants, and it's too scary, and we're not going to go in, except for Joshua and Caleb, who were like, let's do it. Um, So in response to that, God said, okay, you don't trust me. Um, You're overcome with fear and, and unbelief, so you're going to actually now wander around until everyone who's 20 years old or older passes away. And then I'll be left with a new generation, and that's the generation he's addressing here. And there's two generations here, the generation of unbelief, which is the first, and now the generation of faith, who he's talking to. And as you'll see, if you were to go on after Deuteronomy into Joshua, they actually are the ones who go, go in to the land as the Lord has commanded them to go in. Because when I read about these two groups, the generation of fear or unbelief and the generation of faith, I... I see myself in there. See, before I was a believer, before I was born again, I would have considered myself part of that generation of unbelief, not believing what God says, trying to do it on my own, trying to figure everything out in my own strength. But when I got saved, when I entered into uh, the covenant that God gives us, a new covenant, the covenant of promise, when I became born again, I became part of that generation of faith. Now, as we go through this, and as you've already heard, the word covenant gets used a bunch of times. A covenant is like an agreement or a promise that God makes. And there's there's three really important covenants that I want to bring to your attention. The first one is the covenant that God made with Abraham. If you remember, God kind of got Abraham aside and he said, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation from your descendants. And you're going to go from being just you and Sarah and no children to a great nation of people. Now, what God did was that he um, caused Abraham to go to sleep, and then he sacrificed an animal, let the blood run down through a drench, a, a, a drench. That's a ditch and a trench together. <laughs> and he caused Abraham to fall asleep, and then God passed through it himself. Essentially, what he said was, I'm creating a covenant, but I'm, it's between me and myself It benefits Abraham, but it doesn't depend on Abraham. In fact, the fulfillment of this covenant depended solely on God, only. He was the only partner in the covenant agreement. Um, He was the only one who it depended on. And we see that because of that, it was fulfilled, wasn't it? We're talking about two people who became three million people who are in the wilderness right now. And the second covenant was the one that we're kind of talking about right here, where God said, okay, here's a covenant between you and I. If you're obedient, there'll be blessings. If you're disobedient, there are curses or consequences that will happen. Now, here's the thing. That covenant was between God and his people. 
that meant that it partially depended on God fulfilling his part and the people de- and depended on the people in part to fulfill their part. And what happened was the people could not ho- hold up their end of the covenant. And so the covenant was broken. And that's what you see throughout the Old Testament is this broken covenant between God and his people because they weren't obedient. Now, the third covenant is the one that we fall under, which is the covenant of promise. And that one was between God and uh, his church, but it didn't depend on his church. It, again, solely depended on God and his son, Jesus Christ. And it was that covenant of promise that when we accept Jesus, when we're born again, when we get saved, we enter into this covenant of promise. And thankfully, that covenant doesn't depend on our uh, works or actions at all other than to accept Jesus by grace um, into our hearts. And then we enter into this covenant of promise. Now, here's the thing. The first covenant, which solely depended on God, um, was fulfilled because it didn't depend on man. The last covenant, which was between God and Jesus, solely depended on Jesus and not depending on us, um, is being fulfilled as well. The middle covenant, the second one, depended on God and the people, and the people couldn't hold up their end, and so it was broken. Here's the thing. All three of those covenants were sealed with a sacrifice in blood. Remember, um, God with Abraham sacrificed an animal and let the blood run down through the trench. Uh, In in Exodus, we see that God gives them the Ten Commandments and then further further expands the covenant. And then Moses uh, sacrifices a bull and he takes half of that blood and he sprinkles it on the altar and then half on the people. And the the covenant of promise between God and Jesus is Jesus' own body. Is, and blood are sacrificed and spilled to seal that covenant. And that's the one that is everlasting. That's the one that is fulfilled, not having anything to do with us fulfilling it. But we are blessed enough to be able to be a part of that covenant. Does that make sense? Excellent. Let's move on. So these are the words of the covenant. Now Moses called all Israel, said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. This great trial, the, the great trials which your eyes have seen, the signs of those great wonders, yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. You know, he's talking to a group of people, understand that many of them were alive as children in Egypt when God sent the plagues in order to free them. Remember, they were all slaves in Egypt, and, and Moses came, and he said to Pharaoh, you know, God says, let my people go, and Pharaoh's like, no, I'm not going to let them go, and so God sent plagues on them, frogs and bugs and famine and darkness and all these things, and remember the frogs? They were everywhere, everywhere. They'd open a water pot, and there were frogs in there, and these people a lot of these people who he's talking to who are adults now saw this as children. Remember, because think about it. He said, only the ones who are over 20 years old are going to wander around. That's the generation that will pass away. So that left pretty much everyone from 19 down when they were in Egypt, right? So many of these people that he's talking to, when he says, you saw it with your own eyes, they're adults now, but they did see it with their own eyes because they were children or, or you know, very old children Um, at the time of these. So they actually did see plagues. They saw the Red Sea split. 
They saw Pharaoh's army consumed. They saw manna fall from the sky. They saw water spring up from a rock. With their own eyes, they saw these things, and he's reminding them of that. In fact, I didn't even, I heard somebody else teach this and I thought, what? I never even thought about that. But many of the, the uh, people who are in this group that he's talking to right now are alive because of the spilt blood of the lamb from Passover. Remember that? Moses said, the angel of death is going to come through this city and he's going to kill every firstborn, unless you take this lamb and slaughter it and collect up its blood and paint that blood on the doorpost and the lentil of your home, and then take this lamb into your home and eat it as a family, as a sacrifice. If you do that, then your firstborn will be spared. Those who didn't do it, the Egyptians mostly, their firstborns all died. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. That's why Pharaoh ended up letting everybody go. But many of the people in this group that he's talking about are included in the firstborn who were spared because of the spilt blood of the lamb. Whew. So he says, you saw with your own eyes all of this, and yet... You, it did not affect your heart to change. That's what he's saying. In fact, he's going to go through and he's going to talk about some of these miracles. And the fact that he's bringing them up and reminding them tells me that they really had not grasped the gravity of what God was doing right before their eyes. In fact, I think in many cases, they were taking it for granted. He says, I have, and I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out and your sandals have not worn out on your feet. Now, I, I really like that verse just because it's very specific. But when I read that, I think, man, do you see what God is doing? He's saying, okay, you saw like plagues. You saw the sea split open. You saw manna. You saw the rocks. You've seen quail fly all over the place. All these great miracles. I even sustained you through your clothes. Your clothes have not worn out. Your sandals. I've only had these flip-flops for less than a year, and already I have to replace them. Now, yes, I wear them a lot, but I'm not, <laughs> I'm not marching for miles and miles. and miles. Just 10,000 steps, apparently, is what I'm learning nearly every day. Um, and they're ready to wear out. And what he says here is, even your clothes, I sustained even your clothes. And the fact that he's saying that, I wonder if they even realized what was happening. Well, they come out and they'd be like, weren't you wearing that same shirt yesterday? You know, for 40 years. They're asking that same question for 40 years. And, and did they not realize the very miraculous work of God that was happening right in front of their eyes. In fact, I wonder if they were so distracted by looking for the miraculous things of God that they were missing the miraculous things of God that were going on right in front of their face. The guy that makes sandals was just like, I, I, I guess I got to find some other work to do. No one needs sandals, apparently. <laughs> I think that people think today that if we could just witness more miraculous acts and miracles, that people would flock to the church and embrace Jesus, right? And don't you think? But seeing wonders doesn't change a heart. That's what this is saying here. Seeing a wondrous thing right before your eyes does not change a heart. 
maybe we are forgetting the most amazing miracle that we get to witness and sometimes participate in includes a life given over to Jesus. Think about it. When someone gets saved, it includes all of the big miracles. They have the promise now of perfect healing. Now, maybe not here on earth in some cases, but certainly when we get to heaven, perfect healing, the promise of perfect healing. They were blind, the Bible says, but now they see. They were deaf, the Bible says, but now they have ears to hear. The Bible says that they were dead, and now they're alive. The greatest miracle ever rarely happens with worldly fanfare. And yet, it's the most amazing thing. And maybe we're consumed because we're looking for a split sea or water from a rock. Or we're so busy looking for the miraculous works of the Lord that we're missing the miraculous works of the Lord. He says, you have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or similar drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. He's reminding them, look, you have not been in any one place long enough to plant a crop or a, a vineyard. So everything that you've eaten, everything that you've drank was supplied to you by me, God says. Again, when you read through this, you think, they must have been taking all of this provision and all of this stuff so for granted that God feels like he's got to point it out to them again and remind them, everything you have, I've given to you. Everything. And when you came to this place, Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, came out against us to battle, and we conquered them. Remember that? Do you guys remember that? They came out and they, they went into battle against Sihon. Like right away, he attacked them, you know? And you remember, this isn't like the, the Israeli army. This is a bunch of people who were slaves like the day before who came out of slavery, literally just picked up the weapons that the water had washed up on shore after the Red Sea engulfed the Egyptian army and then went into battle and won both times. And Og... That dude was a giant, remember? That guy, and God is like, even the victories you had in battle, I gave you because you weren't prepared for that. You'd never done battle before. You pick up a sword and off you go. We took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, to the Gadites, and to half the tribe of Manasseh. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. You know, this is one of those verses because it contains the word prosper. It says that if you do all that the Lord says, you'll prosper. And some people say, see, God wants me to be rich. Because they assume prosper means money. And, and, and if I do what God says, then he's going to make me rich. And I'll, I'll prosper and I'll have multiple jets. Multiple jets? Now, I guess that makes sense to some people. But see, here's the thing. That word in Hebrew, prosper, doesn't have anything to do with money. In fact, the word in Hebrew, you know what it means? Act intelligently. That word prosper means act intelligently. So let's reword the, let's reread the verse. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may act intelligently in all that you do. Wouldn't that be refreshing? 
Wouldn't it be refreshing if the world just acted intelligently in all that they did? See, it doesn't have anything to do with you being rich. If you do what God calls you to do, will he make you rich? Maybe. Maybe, maybe he'll give you a 178,930 square foot house to live in. I, I, that probably comes with a lot of headaches. I imagine 45 bathrooms. <laughs> but maybe he won't give you that. Maybe he'll give you a spare room in my palatial, man, palatial, palatial mansion. That worked better at nine. <clears throat> Prosper means to act intelligently. Live your life within the will of God. That's what God considers prospering. Live your life within the will of God. Easy, right? What does it mean? What is the will of God? That's always the question. Well, what is the will of God? Pastor, what is? I don't know what the will of God is for my life. I don't know what it is. If anybody ever tells you that, well, it's a mystery and you can't know, run away from that person. Turn and go away from that person because the Bible says more than one place. So I'm going to give you one. Just jot this down. You can look it up later. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. <clears throat> it starts off this way, so it's going to remove some of the mystery. For this is the will of God. So good start. You know. You're going to hear probably what it is. This is the will of God, your sanctification. This is the will of God, your sanctification. So what's that mean? What does sanctification mean? Well, essentially what sanctification means is you become more and more like Jesus every single day. Becoming more like Jesus. That is your sanctification. That is the will of God, that you become more like Jesus every single day. In which case, you will be able to live within the will of God, which means you are prospering. Doesn't have anything to do with money. If, God, if someone says, the word says that God wants me to be rich, go away from that person. All of you stand today before the Lord your God, our leaders and your tribes and your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones and your wives, and also the stranger who is in your camp from the one who cuts your wood to the one who draws your water. Do you see what that's really saying? He's like, this, this message isn't just for your, your elders, your pastors, your leaders. This is for them, but it's for your husbands and your wives and your kids and your neighbors and your strangers. Were there strangers in the camp of the Israelites? You can say yes or no, it's okay. Yes, there were. Well, there must be because he's including them. But here's how we know. In Exodus, it says when they left Egypt, they were a mixed multitude, which meant that there were some people who were with them in Egypt, either in bondage or living next door or whatever, that either saw something that they had after the plagues. It was like, well, why is it dark in my house? But there are still lights on over in Goshen, where, this, where the slaves live saw something about their life that they said, well, wherever they're going, I'm going with them. Whatever they've got is definitely better than all these frogs and darkness and fleas and, and pestilence. I'm, I'm going with them. Some of them, I'm sure, didn't have any idea why. They just went. And now they've had all of these years to learn, and God is saying, look, I'm including them as well. I'm including the stranger in, your, uh, in this opportunity for covenant relationship 
with me. I really do love the fact that God is so inclusive. I mean, did you ever hear anybody say, oh, that Christianity, it's so exclusive. It's not really exclusive. It's specific, but it's not exclusive. In fact, in James, it says that he desires that everyone come to repentance and be saved. Everyone. Do you know who that includes? Everyone. Very good. Excellent. Everyone. It is his desire. It is God's desire that everyone enter into the covenant of promise and be saved. Not exclusive. Specific, but not exclusive. Verse 12, that you may enter the covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath, which the Lord your God makes with you today that he may establish you today as a people for himself and that he may be God to you just as he has spoken to you and just as he has sworn to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I make this covenant and this oath not with you alone, but with him who stands here with us today before the Lord our God as well as with him who is not here with us today. That's talking about their children and their children's children and the descendants that would come all along the way. And I'm just reminded of how important it is for us as parents to pass on to our children the faith that we believe and say, you know, that, that's why I really love, like today, for example, is family church with children, 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 joining us right here, hearing this. Now, you know what? Maybe it's not you know, sinking into the deep recesses of their soul yet. But it's so important for us to pass this on. Like, I grew up in a church, and the word was preached, and I'm sure the gospel was preached, although I'm not sure I heard it. But my parents passed it on to me. Now, I veered off for a long time, but God pursued me, and at some point I accepted him as my Lord and Savior, and here I am now back again. But there was always something in my mind, some remembrance of something that my parents had told me or something about going to church, even just sitting there and thinking, you know, and my church was really old. It was a very old church building. And we had um, wooden pews. And, um, the, and, and what would happen is we would be sitting there in the church, my sister and my brother and I, you know, and I'm in the, I'm in the middle. I may have mentioned this before. Um, that we'd be sitting there, and one of them, not me, because I was the good one, but one of them would say something funny, and then we would start laughing. But we weren't allowed to laugh in church. <laughs> and so if we started to laugh, my dad would go, and we'd be like, shh. So you're trying to hold in a laugh, but your whole body is going, <laughs> and pretty soon the whole pew is going like this. That's what I remember from church. Something stuck. Something got in there because my parents passed it on and passed it on. And I'll do the same, and I am doing the same with my children. And hopefully someday they'll be passing it on to their children, this everlasting covenant of promise that we all get to be a part of. Thank you, Lord. For you know that we dwelt in the land of Egypt that we came through the nations which you passed by. Verse 17, and you saw their abominations and their idols which were among them, wood and stone and silver and gold, so that there may not be among you a man or a woman or a family or a tribe whose heart turns away towards from the Lord our God to go serve the gods of these nations. 
again, we're back to this warning against idolatry because as he knows and as we've learned that it is going to be prevalent in this pagan nation that they're going into and not just prevalent, not just everywhere, but extremely tempting for whatever reason, whatever it is that they had was going to be very tempting for these Israelites to say, you know what, I think we want, to, we want that. Whatever they've got, look at their shiny statue. How come we don't have a shiny statue to bow down to? And it says that he warns them about going out. He says, look at this. He says, uh, whose heart turns away. It's not even that they just their eyes turn away or their ears turn away, but their heart turns away from God and goes toward a false god or an idol that this pagan nation was going to be uh, worshiping. So whatever it was, it was they were going to have something that was going to draw the heart of these people away from God who had done all of these amazing things that they had witnessed. Remember, just witnessing a miraculous event doesn't change your heart. They were going to turn away to these idols. And you see what it says that they were going to go. This says that they were going to pursue false gods. And you have to pursue a false god because a false god does not pursue you. Why? Because it's just made of wood. It's a statue. It does nothing. It's a paperweight. It props your door open. A false God will not pursue you. You must pursue a false God. So if you find yourself worshiping a false God, it's because you pursued it. Now, ironically, I worship a God who pursues me rather than me having to pursue a false God. The Bible is filled with verses telling us how much God pursued us. Google it yourself. Does God pursue us? Couple of 37 verses right off the top that will tell you. Here's one John 3 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's God pursuing you. And you know what? Thankfully, God is relentless in his pursuit. I'm so thankful because I'm sure there were many times where I had the opportunity to accept him as my Lord and Savior and didn't. And he just kept coming after me and coming after me until I was like, I surrender. I surrender. Have all of me. Have all of me. But he says here that if they go after these other gods, these false gods, if they leave the God they know and go after the ones they don't know, it says that there may be among you a root of bitterness or wormwood. What this is basically saying is idolatry ultimately produces bitterness. Think about it like this. Like, there's no way that I'm sitting in my house looking at my neighbor and saying, look at the gold statue they have. I want a gold statue too. I'm not going to do that. that. I would just never do that. But remember, we've talked about modern day idolatry is anything that takes the place in your heart before God. So maybe you're looking over or maybe you're uh, um, going through your you know, Facebook or Instagram or whatever and you're seeing your friend's you know, like beautiful vacation pictures all the time. Like, how are people going on vacation all the time? Doesn't anybody work? Sorry. <laughs> That's funny. I just came back from vacation, but it was a lot of work. I'm just telling you, I was completely stressed the whole time. <clears throat> 
to look at your friends and their social media and you're looking at their life and saying, look at the life they have and look at, I mean, look how easy their life is and it's vacation here and fun there and look, look, their family is happy all the time. They're always smiling and they're like this all the time and how do they do that and I want that. Is that real? No, it's not real, but it's false actually. And you can look at that and say, I want that. And you start to desire that. And it starts to take the place in your heart that God is supposed to have. And it becomes an idol. And your friend's social media life becomes your idol. And you know what? Then what you're doing is you're getting your kids like, come on, kids, everybody, come on, come on. I'm thinking of the answers over here, right? Come on. Come on, all of you, all of you, come on, everybody, let's smile. Everybody, like, you know, and you see those pictures, like everyone's shoving like this, and then Cesar says, smile, and everyone goes, <laughs> and you take the picture, and it's false. And, you know, pretty soon, you know, you're, you're with Cesar, and he's taking, like, pictures everywhere you go, everywhere, and you're just like, like, you start to get bitter, like, you know, then your friends, you look at your friend's picture, and they're still better than your pictures, because now they're all smiling, but they're, like, in front of the Eiffel Tower, and you're like, oh, <laughs> idolatry produces bitterness. Don't let anything in that's going to take the place of God in your heart. You could be like, oh, well, that's really fun. That looks like a, you know, or you know what? Just cancel Facebook anyway. Just do it anyway. You know, or don't, I don't know. <laughs> Just don't get sucked in to this idolatry that happens so subtly. You I mean, I'm, I'm sure that these people are like, I love God, but I like that thing too. And pretty soon, you're just pulled on over there. In fact, it says, again, in my reading in Isaiah this past week, it says that the, the Lord's hand is not too short that it can't save, and his ear isn't too heavy that it can't hear, but it is your iniquity that separates you from God. And in fact, later on, it will say, in Isaiah, a little bit later on, it will say, your iniquity, like the wind, has caused you to be drawn away. You know what iniquity is? It's sin, right? But it's more than that. Like sin is you missed the mark. Transgression is sin that you, you did on purpose. Iniquity is deeper still. Iniquity is premeditated sin that you know you shouldn't do. And when you do it, you don't really feel like you should or need to repent. And it is the iniquity in Isaiah, it says, that are drawing you away like the wind. I had the opportunity to go deep sea fishing on Tuesday, you know. I'd never done that before. It was fun. The ride out there is brutal. Two hours. <laughs> and everybody is like, just keep your eye on the horizon. <laughs> you're like, you're like, you're holding on, going, you know, two hours just to start fishing. And uh, so what happens is, you know, you find the right spot and your, your guide is like, Okay, everybody, here, I mean, you're looking around going, how do you know it looks the exact same as every other place? <laughs> Somehow they know. And so you get there and you, and you fish, and um, they put an anchor down. You know why they put the anchor down? Do you know? Because if you didn't, you would drift away. The wind and the current would carry you away from that really prime fishing place. It's the same. Your iniquity, like the wind, will carry you away. Unrepented sin will carry you away. So how do you stay in that place where you're supposed to be? You drop your anchor. But your anchor has to be into something solid. And what is that solid thing that you plant your anchor in? 
Yes, Jesus. Plant your anchor firmly in Jesus, and you will not be carried away. Now, will you still sin? Probably. But it gives you the opportunity to say, Lord, Lord, first of all, give me the strength. Iniquity is sin you know you're going to do. Do you understand? Iniquity is sin that's premeditated, meaning I know I'm going to do this. Even though I know I shouldn't, I really want to because there's like a half a second of pleasure in sin. And Jesus says, but you know that sin. Ask me to help you overcome it. The Bible says that he has given us through the Holy Spirit the power to overcome any temptation that comes into our life. If I know I'm going to do it and I'm feeling tempted, say, Jesus, help me. I surrender. Guess what he does? He helps you. He gives you the power to overcome the temptation so that your iniquity will not carry you away like the wind. Amen? Verse 19, and so it may happen when he hears the words of this curse and he blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my own heart as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. See, that whole verse is self-deception right there. I'll be fine. No, really, I'll be fine. Listen, this is from the New Living Translation. Those who hear the warning of this curse should not congratulate themselves thinking, I am safe, even though I am following desires of my own stubborn heart. This will lead to utter ruin. Self-deception. That's not really sin. I mean, I kind of feel like it is, but I can convince myself it's not. And then, you know what? You know, there's a saying that says that if you tell yourself a lie long enough, you'll believe it to be true. That's probably true, but it doesn't make it true. It doesn't make the lie true. It's just you've self, you've deceived yourself. I'll be fine. How many times have you heard people say to you, I'm glad that you found something that works for you. But I have my own understanding of heaven, if there is a heaven, of going there. I've heard it. In my own family, I've heard it. The idea is, well, when it comes time for me to die and I go to heaven, they're assuming there is one and they're assuming they'll go there, at least to the entry gate, you know, um, that they'll simply have to lay out all of their good against all of their bad, and they put it on the great cosmic scale, and they're like hoping that the good weighs more than the bad. But you know what? I'm a good person. I've never done anything. I, you know what? I do good all the time. I never even killed anybody. <laughs> well, I'm glad. But that's not a good thing you did. That's a bad thing you didn't do. Right? The idea is like, I'll be fine in my own stubborn heart, the, the word says. I convince myself that I'll be fine. I don't really need Jesus because I have enough good to outweigh my bad. But here's the reality, gang, if that's what you think, if there's anybody here that that's what you think, um, it's not your good and your bad that gets weighed against each other. It's, it's your good versus Jesus' is good. Now, there ain't anybody that I know that has more good than Jesus has. So if you're relying on having more good than Jesus, you're out of luck. You're not going to measure up. There is no, but what Jesus did do is he said, you know what, get rid of the scale. You know what he said? I died for you 
So if you accept me as your Lord and Savior, then I am enough. I'm more than enough. I'm more than enough for whomever does that. That's the reality. But in your stubborn heart, this says, in your stubborn heart, people say, I'm fine. But what does it lead to? Utter ruin. It says the Lord would not spare him from the anger that the Lord, uh, the Lord in his jealousy would burn against that, that man and every curse that is written in this book would settle on him and the Lord would blot out his name from under heaven and the Lord would separate him from all the tribes of Israel from adversity, for adversity according to all the curses and the covenant that are written in this book of the law. You know what this is really saying is you can decide, this is what he's saying to them, you can decide whether you want to obey or disobey. Your choice, obey or disobey. But what you don't get to decide is what the consequences will be. That's up to God. And that's what he's saying to them right here. Now, thankfully, under the, in the covenant of promise, my actions don't disqualify me from eternal life with Jesus Christ. I'm sealed by the Holy Spirit. But when I sin, there are still consequences. There are still consequences that I don't get to choose, but I get to choose whether I obey or disobey. I'm going to choose to obey, at least as much as I possibly can. And so the coming... So that the coming generation of your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a land, a far land, would say, when they see the plagues in the land that the, in the sickness which the Lord has laid on it, the whole land is brimstone, salt, and burning. It is not shown, nor does it bear, nor does any grass grow there, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma or Zemboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. All the nations would say, why has the Lord done this to this land? And what does the heat of this great anger mean? Then people would say, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. For they went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods that they did not know and that he had not given to them. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against this land to bring on it every curse that is written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them and their land in anger, in wrath and in great indignation and cast them into another land as it is this day. That whole section is what people outside of the Jews would look in and say when they saw all of this happen. When, when God actually does come in and, des, and just decimate the land and the people, that the people from outside the Jews would look at and say, this happened because they were disobedient to their God who said this would happen. And in fact, what that means is their lives would be witness to their faith. You understand? Your life will bear witness to those around you. Your life will bear witness witness to those around you. So how will we respond to blessing? However we respond to blessing, we'll witness, we'll bear witness. How will we respond to trials? However we do it, we'll bear witness to those around us. So the question is, what will your life's witness be? And finally, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. There's a couple things there. This says that there are some things that God has not 
revealed to us. These are his secret things. There are things that he says, I'm just not going to tell you what those are. And maybe you've got a couple in your head. Maybe you're thinking, well, I wish God would tell me this, or I wish God would that, or I heard that there's a secret, you know, secret knowledge. There's secret knowledge somewhere in here. And, and you can get consumed with like the Illuminati or the, the, the Knights Templar or the, the secret eye or all the secret, secret things that are going on. But this says, you know what? The secret things belong to God. But there are things that you know. The secret things can become such a distraction to you that you don't actually do the things that he's told you you can know. Do the things you know. That's what this verse says. There are things that you just aren't going to know. God's, gonna, God's holding on to those. Do the things you do know. Don't become so distracted by the secret things that you don't do the things you know you are to do. On Tuesday night, we had the youth group. I have the middle school kids. They're very, they're, they're a lot of fun. <laughs> and I asked them, if you could ask God one question, what would that one question be? And actually, they had some pretty great questions. I was, I was kind of surprised, and it made me laugh. Some of the questions, like, like one, one said, um, God, why don't you have a wife? I said, I can answer that question. <laughs> no, shame on you. That's not what I meant. I meant that God created a wife for Adam because he was alone and he needed help. And God isn't alone. He's three in one. He's never been alone and he doesn't need help. So God doesn't need a wife. But it was interesting to hear their questions. My question, what would your question be? If you had one question to ask God, one thing, he was like, okay, the secret things are mine, but I'll tell you one thing. What is it you want to know? What's the one thing? You know what my question would be? When are you coming back, Lord? But I think he would say, no, no, not besides that one. Besides that one. Because here's the thing. I don't think God has told us when he's coming back. Because if he was said, oh, you know, well, what, he's, what, what Paul, what, what it says in the word is that, you know what, it might be a discouragement to us. If he was like, yes, I'm going to come back. It's in 2057. I'd be like, oh, <laughs> man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to live my whole life. Also, maybe we just wouldn't live like he's coming back tomorrow if we knew it wasn't tomorrow. But don't you think that he wants us to live like he might come back tomorrow with that kind of urgency? He was like, I've got to talk to you today about Jesus because I love you enough to tell you the truth about Jesus Christ. If I knew it wasn't for 30 years from now, I may be like, you know what? I'm going to wait until I like you a little more before I step out into that path. Don't get distracted by the things you don't know. Do what you know. Do what you know. Do you, if you don't know what you know, well, come and talk to me later, and I'll tell you all the things that you know and all the things. But if you're here right now, if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you don't know, that is the one and most important thing that you can know and that you must do, you must repent, you must ask for forgiveness, you must accept him as your Lord and Savior. That's a must do. There's no secret about that. There's no secret about that. So if you haven't done that, come and pray with me after the service and say, you know what, I want to do, do what I know now that I must do. 
I want to pray and accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this morning and for your word and your examples and, Lord, for how you um, teach us and change us and encourage us, exhort us and challenge us. Lord, I pray that as we go out of this place today, full up on hot dogs and salad, Lord, that we would also be changed in our heart even a little more than we were when we came today, Lord. Help us to look out onto this crazy mixed up world around us, Lord, and see it with the eyes of the long-suffering, compassionate eyes that you have, Lord. Lord, thank you for how you extended amazing grace to me. Lord, help me to do so to those around me. Lord, help me to love like you love. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org.